Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jamie Creel with Shelter Insurance. Come see how we've built a name that you can trust and why it is a must to get your free quote today with our Switch and Save. Located in Ridgeland and Florida, Mississippi, give us a call, 601-992-6000. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbert along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. Someone is going to win them a billion dollars it looks like. The uh, 1.765 billion dollar Powerball jackpot was apparently struck by a Californian. Again. Yeah. Uh, a lot of folks in California, they sell a lot of tickets. And by the way, I actually did a little research on this. $10 billion a year in gross sales in the California lottery. That is a little less than 10% of total nationwide sales by state lotteries. It's about $107 billion annually. But some lucky player scored. California convenience store owner was presented with a million-dollar check as a commission. Las Palomitas Mini Market, Navar Herrera, the owner, received a million-dollar check during a press conference with Powerball officials this morning. How about that? The drawing, of course, took place last night, second largest in jackpot history. 35 consecutive drawings failed to produce a winner, but the one last night hit it. Unbelievable. The, the, the Multi-State Lottery Association said Powerball, quote, has become ubiquitous with life-changing jackpots. That's one way to put it. And so lots of folks are buying tickets because they hope to land the big in themselves. And as a result of the precipitous rise in the purchase of tickets, the jackpots rise on up there. So, man, they can get, let's see, uh, an annuitized value of about a billion. That, that'll do it. I think you could probably get by on that. The chance of winning, by the way, 1 in 292 million. How about that? That's pretty cool. Big old winner. We want to see that happen right here in Mississippi, though. 
Love to see a billion-dollar winner. Now, I don't know what the law states in California as far as revealing the identity of the lucky player here in the state of Mississippi, the Clark Act, which established the Mississippi Lottery Corporation, does not require disclosure of any winners of uh, lottery prizes. Don't have to do it. You can keep totally anonymous. Of course, I guess if you're kind of the average Joe, and all of a sudden you come home like uh, with a Lamborghini, you might be <laughs> the neighbors might be a little suspicious. You think, and then they pack up like Jed Clampett and the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> and move out and uh, to some mansion. <laughs> that might be a clue. Something happened. What they call the pool again? The cement pond. The cement pond. <laughs> you got yourself a cement pond, baby. <laughs> Ellie Mae out by the cement pond. And Granny always shooing folks away there while Jethro was over in the corner ciphering. Not time, not equals not. What a great show that was. Did I tell you when I lived out there in Bakersfield, California? The home, by the way, of former Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy which is like, unlike any other area of California. It's uh, actually quite conservative in nature. Even, even back then, when I lived out there, and that was the early 80s. But uh, I, had, I had a buddy I worked on the project with. He was from Chicago. And, and he, was, he was actually on a different project, I should say. But he lived in Santa Monica, and I got to know him at one of the schools that we went to together up in Chicago uh, for the firm we worked for. And we were both golf nuts, so I'd go down there and play golf with him. But we were curious, and we were like tourists, you know, in Los Angeles, and we went and toured Beverly Hills, and just back then you could just ride around. The communities weren't all that secure from like they are now with all these gates and stuff that you have. And we're just kind of traversing a, a road up a hill there, and boom, you come upon, I recognize that. It was Jed Clampett's mansion. And it, it did have the two big iron gates. It, it, it did. You know, it was kind of a separate property. But it wasn't set back as far as kind of the program made it look. Um, it, it seemed like it was maybe 50 yards back, you know, beyond the street, behind the street. Makes you wonder if that was movie magic or if something changed with the way they laid out the road there. Well, I don't know. You, you could be right. But it did, in fact, sit up on a hill. So, like, the view from the cement pond, you know, where you could look. It, it, that would, is real. I mean, I, I think, I don't think it was real when they filmed the show that looked like a kind of a drawing or a rendering, yeah. you know, was set. But it, it could be real, based on where it was positioned there, at the top of the hill. It's also not quite as big, as, I think, as the television depicted it. But it's still big. But it, it was clearly recognizable. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, I remember that. Of course, this was, you know, only 15, 20 years removed from when the show was popular. And as a kid growing up in that era... We watched it, uh, everybody did, with regularity. It was primetime television. Buddy Epson is Uncle Jed. You know the story behind him. He was supposed to be the Tin Man, right, in The Wizard of Oz. 
had a severe allergic reaction to the paint they were using. Oh, the paint. Incredible. But nonetheless, digressing a bit, some Californian has got themselves $1.765 billion waiting. Again, it'll be I'll be interested to see whether or not they have to reveal the identity. That'd be I don't think I'd want everybody to know, would you? I just won $1.765 billion. I don't want anybody to know. I mean, my family and friends would know. Sure. And from there it would probably get out. So, I mean, yeah, you can hide your identity from the press, but it's eventually going to get out. Yeah, I, I think it'd be pretty hard to conceal that. I mean, unless you... Even Unless you're like you, the guy that showed up in the full Halloween costume, so even his wife wouldn't know. <laughs> That's right. It'd be pretty hard, though, to keep... I mean, I could see a you know, a few million, you might be able to conceal that, but when you start getting into the billions, that's a little, little difficult, right? Uh, unless, I mean, it, it certainly would be more likely it would get out if you started spending it, and all of a sudden all these assets started popping up around you. But if you invested it, of course, uh, I would highly recommend you go get legal counsel and financial advisors and and that kind of money you'd probably want to spread out among uh, a number yeah, you don't want to hire your, your crazy uncle to be your manager <laughs> negative that's exactly right oh well so uh, inflation it's sticky that's what we've learned the feds rate hiking campaign has so not, it's not transitory no uh, they they blew it. Let me just say that. The Fed blew it. What did I say? They got 340 economics PhDs running around the halls of the Fed, and they all messed, missed it. Kind of calls into question the value, does it not, of a PhD in economics. No disrespect, but they did miss it. Let's be honest. So did Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Oh, it's transitory. How many times she say that? during that that period when we started to see it creep up, the 21. Almost as many times as Kamala has said, unburdened by what has been. <laughs> what, what a total waste that is. Well, inflation rose at the consumer, the retail level, 3.7% in September. That comes in hotter, as the folks on Wall Street like to say, hotter than expected. And well above the Fed's target of 2%. And they're not budging on that. They're still looking to get inflation down to 2%. I'd say they got a way to go. Now, here's the problem. You get all these geopolitical uh, issues out there, lots of chaos, of course. And that could pressure the U.S. economy. What does the Fed do here? Uh, raise rates again so as to address this sticky inflation. We shall say Drake Bassett, president and CEO of Palmer Home, joins us at 10.35 and then Ashley Edwards at 12.05. We had Congressman Michael Guest scheduled to come on, but uh, he texted me earlier this morning and said, oop, they've whisked us back into a meeting. You know why. We'll talk about that. The Speaker of the House, when we come back. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
Riley bumping us into this segment of Middays. Once again, we are in the Element Wealth Studios. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. The C Spire text line 601 601- Eight seven nine four three nine five. Once again, Rhino is going to give away some tickets before we are out of here today. We got tickets to the Township Blues Festival coming up on Saturday, November the eleventh. We'll give away some tickets. Um, I do not recommend to Hamas and Hezbollah and the terrorists in the region to doubt the resolve of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. I wouldn't do it. I think he's pretty serious. That uh, I really felt like he exhibited leadership in his, his comments. And he, like I said, his resolve is unquestionable. He has created a unity government to oversee the war, and like a wartime cabinet is kind of how it's being described. He vowed to, quote, crush and destroy Hamas. Sort of feels like that's the only way, is it not, to rid the world of these pests. And that's being nice, calling them pests. And I mean that in the most animalistic way. These are subhumans. They do not deserve to be referred to as humans, in my view. So this new cabinet is designed to establish a degree of unity. They've had some divided politics in the tiny nation of Israel. It is estimated now that the war has claimed 2,300 lives on both sides side. The government of Israel is under a fair amount of pressure to get rid of these terrorists. That's after, of course, the militants stormed through a border fence and massacred hundreds of innocent Israeli civilians in their homes, on the streets, at a music festival. Incredible that that's even going on, but the word now we're getting is that they are poised to mobilize ground forces to go in. And this is a very densely populated little strip here. Gaza City already looks like it's been decimated quite a bit. But I don't think Yeah, you it's kind of hard for some people to visualize or imagine just how small the country of Israel is with a lot of let people. alone the Gaza Strip which yeah. is a a subsection of the land if you took the map of Mississippi and this is in rough terms it's not exact but it'll give you an idea if you take a map of Mississippi and you go from Tupelo over to say Greenwood and then down to Vicksburg and over to Hattiesburg, and you make a a rectangle with those four points within the Magnolia State, 
Israel fits inside that rectangle. Yeah. It's incredible. How many people? Three million? Something like that. Did I have that right? I haven't looked at that in a while. Nine million. Nine million. Okay. Yeah. You know why we should know that? Because that's roughly the population of New York, I believe, but in a much smaller area, if I'm not mistaken. That's how I've yeah, heard New it. New York's eight and a half. There you go. That's how I've heard it described, you know, just for comparative purposes there. That's a lot of people in a very small area. I mean, the the country of Israel is so small geographically, and technology is so advanced that when the Israeli Air Force trains their pilots, they all learn how to fly at a bank. Yeah. Because you, you literally, the plane is going so fast, you have to constantly be turning to stay within Israeli airspace. Yeah. That's, I uh, never thought about that, but it makes total sense. I mean, you're doing mock speed there. And before you know it, you're out of the country. If you're going straight. And they're surrounded and by enemies, so you can't really go outside the airspace without causing an international incident. Oh, and you know they're looking for it. Just uh, honestly, they're probably praying. I pray they come into our airspace so we can take them out. And then accuse them of invading, right? Well, this unity government to oversee the war is uh, is has been established by Netanyahu. Of course, um, and it's an emergency unit and a war cabinet. That's what the Israeli government is uh, is described as now. So we'll see where that goes. You know, we we pray for uh, a swift and righteous outcome. But I, these people. I don't see how you can negotiate with them. Their goal, their objective, has been for a long time, is to essentially eradicate Jews off the planet. And that starts by obliterating Israel. That's what they want. I've even heard some rumblings of making threats or leveraging threats of nuclear attack. You heard this? Using nuclear bombs? Weapons? as a deterrent, just threatening that. So I I don't know. It's crazy to me that John Kirby, with the Biden administration, is still standing on this idea that Iran is not involved in this whatsoever. Seriously? Unbelievable. I did see that the $6 billion that the Biden administration agreed to return to Iran in exchange for hostages, is actually currently sitting in a bank in Qatar. And Senator Tim Scott, also a candidate for president, has introduced a bill that would freeze that money in Qatar, work with the Qatar government to do so, so that it does not reach Iran. But feels a little pie in the sky. Yeah, I'm not sure it's because possible. Because the uh, leader, yeah, self-proclaimed leader, I believe, but the leader of Hamas lives in Qatar. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. You can't trust any of that. It, it seems like there's lots of little uh, kind of veiled relationships, if you will. Sort of, sort of one posture to the public, to the world, and then another behind closed doors, wink-wink sort of deal. 
I, I don't I mean, trust the, it. The, the example that most Americans would be familiar with is Afghanistan and Pakistan. Yeah. Yeah. Afghanistan was the home of Osama bin Laden, but he wasn't there. That's right. He was in Pakistan for, for, for pretty much the entirety of the Afghan war. Yep. Or until he died. Coward. Let's be honest. And we were, quote-unquote, working with Pakistan, and they never told us. Yeah, exactly. Even though, apparently, they did know. They knew. Can't be trusted. Just cannot be trusted. We, we should not have any foreign policy that relies, in my view, on those nations uh, if it requires trusting them to act or Act, uh, act on any agreements and fulfill those, or act in the best interest of this country. Shouldn't be the case. Meanwhile, up in Washington, Republicans still unable to elect a new speaker, even though Steve Scalise, the congressman from the great state of Louisiana, he won the conference vote, 113 to 99, over Representative Jim Jordan, but they kind of put the pause button on the plans because yesterday late afternoon because they can't seem to unite their conference and they you can't lose the what five votes uh, assuming the Democrats are going to support the, a Democrat nominee we did have Congressman Michael Guest scheduled to appear on the program today and and was looking forward to that to find out what's going on, but he, he texted uh, me early this morning, said they've called us back into meeting, and he's on a, at the exact time he was coming on the show. So uh, we regret that, but certainly understand he's got duty to attend to. We're coming right back with Drake Bassett, Bassett, pardon me, President and CEO of Palmer Home. Stay with us. Podcasts. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. I woke up today and the world felt heavy, so I grabbed my keys and I went for a drive. Followed some county road wherever it led me past the fell on the porch in a Texaco sign. Crossed the bridge, running over a creek. Miles of fields far as I could see, and there wasn't no steeple. Welcome back, everyone. It's middays. We're live from the Element Wealth Studio. We welcome to the program Drake Bassett, president and CEO of Palmer Home. Hey, Drake, good to see you. Good to see you, Gerard. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, give us an update on the Palmer Home. Of course, we always enjoy hosting the Radiothon. Uh, from all accounts, I think we had a very successful Radiothon, raised some money, and always enjoy meeting the staff and the children um, and the families associated with Palmer Home. Uh, really a very gratifying experience. How we do? Well, we did really, really well. Uh, and I'm really happy uh, for a moment or two on your show just to thank all the donors who contributed. Uh, you know, we raised over uh, $360,000. I think 367000 was the final number. Uh, but I'm, I'm equally happy to, you know, to share that those resources have, have gone into doing what we're supposed to do. Uh, you know, you talk about some of the crises around the globe, and strangely, those are starting to affect, you know, parts of our country. 
Um, you know, Texas is feeling pressure, of course, and, and the coast is feeling pressure. Uh, we had a first call from uh, a refugee situation uh, recently. Uh, and, you know, it, it doesn't change the fact that we're committed primarily to Mississippi and to children all across the country who, who have a need for this. But, you know, I think we're all participants uh, at, in, in world affairs just on our, our own level. And as I was listening to you, I, I thought about the fact that everybody can appreciate uh, the pressure uh, and sometimes the heartbreak that comes into the lives of children when things are complicated um, all around them. And they have no control over that. So all the donors who participated in, in our Radiothon, those dollars are going into the lives that we're involved with. Um, you know, young uh, a teenage boy just joined our transitional program and we're helping him find his way. Uh, we had a, a young girl that was adopted uh, last month, finally, uh, by virtue of a great relationship with a foster family that we've worked with. Um, and just yesterday, you know, we took we took four phone calls. We don't normally get four phone calls before noon, but four phone calls of families in trouble who need a place for children uh, you know, to come. And so we're very busy. We're active. Um, and this is about protecting and helping children in, in tough situations and trying to provide some sense of normalcy despite chaos. Yeah. And so we're glad that we can do it. And we're thankful to everyone who makes it possible. You know, the it's it's great uh, comments there, Drake. The, the, the point is that I hope everybody keeps in mind is children don't control this. They don't have control of these situations. It, it's absolutely true. You could say that in, in a lot of cases, ad, yeah. adults make unfortunate decisions and, and those cause problems in their in their lives. But children, typically, it's it, it's bad decisions made often by adults. Sometimes it's it's just bad luck or just extenuating circumstances. But the bottom line is they don't have control over that. They're, but they're in the middle of it, and they're directly affected by it. And you only get to be a child once. And you deserve to have a stable life. And you're going to be a productive adult, I dare say, if you've got a stable, functional childhood. Well, I think you, you hit on a couple of things there. Number one, it is out of their control. Uh, and so that's a very vulnerable place to be. None of us like to be out of control uh, even as middle-aged, you know, uh, you know, business people or whatever else, we, we, we like to have things under our thumb to the best of our ability. Sure. We get a little nervous if we need a, a tough message back from a doctor or, or something, and we just don't feel like we're in control. Well, try being 10 years old um, and, and, and living in, a, in a, a very combustible home environment where there's violence or where there are words being said. Um, and what the second thing you mentioned there is without that, sense of normalcy um and and to take it one step further that sense of safety yeah uh that sense of peace and tranquility in your childhood years immediately makes you a high risk for uh the instability that is is well documented um uh for for children who've come out of, of tough home situations or no home situation um they they're not sure of themselves they're not sure who to trust uh, they don't know what to do. They're not sure if anybody really cares. Uh, and people that go into the world like that as adults carry with them all of the baggage, sometimes of the first 10, 15 years of their life. Yeah. So to the best of our ability, 
what we can do. We can't replace and fix everything, but what we can do is we can put people and circumstances in the life of that instability and, and, and regulate that and bring that back to a sense of, guess what? You do matter, and, and we're here to help you, and we're going to introduce you to some basic things about childhood, some stability, some food, a place to sleep, a bike to ride, things to do. And so Palmer Home, I think, is definitely on the front line of helping children day by day. It's never easy, but it's always rewarding. Yeah. Uh, well said, uh, Drake. And, and we should remind the audience that Palmer Home receives uh, no public funding. This comes uh, from private donations, right? That's what you rely on, is, is money from good people that reach into their wallets and are touched in their hearts and, and give to Palmer Home. Well, that, that's such an important thing. And, and you know, when, when you know, you've been talking about it this morning, uh, you know, the challenges uh, politically and, uh, uh, and and the fact that there's so much push and pull around, you know, federal funding and, and, and what's going to go where. And we all have opinions about that. And, and, and I think it's important to have opinions about that. Sure. Uh, but I will say this, that when it comes to caring for children, we're not watching that, you know, from a federal standpoint, we're not watching from a state standpoint. There is a reason why people privately contribute to Palmer Home. That's so we can keep on doing the work. Doesn't matter what decade it is, because we've been around for 120 of them. Mm-hmm. What matters is, is that we do the right thing every day. And so we could not do this without the, the, the individual gifts of people and churches and businesses that make the decision uh, to contribute and make this happen. Yeah, that's awesome. What's uh What's on the horizon for you, Drake, or the long term? Any, any sort of plans that, that you're working on now for the home? Well, I think, you know, we're going to continue to expand, uh, you know, the work that we do, both on our, our uh, uh, campus care, uh, also in transitional. Again, those children 18 to 24, we're doing that. We've also got a couple of events coming up where we're going to tell people the story. Uh, if you're an old Miss fan, we've got a tailgate that you need to get involved with. Uh, I think that's uh, October 21st, so you can go to our website for that. Um, we've also got something I, I would am happy to share on the radio, which is sort of a, a pastor's or, or a missional team's interest in, in, in what we do at Palmer Home. And so we're going to have that pastor's uh, uh, breakfast uh, uh, on October 24th. So if there's a pastor out there or a mission team leader or, or somebody that wants to involve your church in the work that we're doing, we invite you to come and join us uh, on October 24th. And you can go to our website for that, too, uh, or you can call us at 662-449-2400. But, uh, you know, and um, by the way, I'm not going to leave out Hell State. Uh, on, on November 11th, we got something for them, too. So we, <laughs> we're going to have our tailgate then. Yeah. But, Gerard, you know, it means a lot that we get to partner with you guys and, and tell the story because – you know, when you see that heartbreak on television in Gaza or, or Israel and you and you recognize, you, you see it plain and clear, children just don't have control over things. And so it falls to us to be responsible adults in our space and time to do what we can to help those children so that they can experience a sense of peace and some trust, a um, plate of food and a place to sleep. Yeah. I mean, gosh, every human deserves the dignity of that, uh, in my view, especially children that um, end up in these these uh, difficult circumstances, and and uh, it had no control over it. Didn't ask for it. It, it just is what it is, and we got to take care of them. That's what you guys do. Uh, you got to tell the folks, Drake, um, that certainly you don't have to just uh, 
make your contributions on Radiothon Day. You can do that anytime. So tell us tell us how they can do that. Yeah, you can easily go to our website, and we've got a, a, a hopefully a very simple donor page where you can step through, and you can do a one-time gift of $10, or you can do a monthly gift of something like that, or you can reach out to us uh, above and beyond the website. There's a phone number there if you want to call us um, uh, and, and, and donate. And, and what I encourage people to think about is it's, it's not the amount. It's just, you know, you, you don't want to go through life without putting your fingerprints on some situation where you've made a difference in the life of the child. And if we can invest in these children right now, you know, some of the anger, some of the hatred, some of the, some of the bitterness, all of that, we, we diffuse that for the future. And we no make doubt. good things for the future. No so, doubt. Thank you, Gerard. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you, Drake, for all the great work of you and the staff of Palmer Home. God bless these children and families, and we uh, appreciate our relationship with Palmer Home. We at Super Talk do, and we look forward to talking to you some more. Take care. Thanks, Drake. Great. Thank you, Gerard. We're coming right. We're coming right back in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. I needed somewhere to hang without your news. You gave me something that I didn't have, but I know you. I was too weak to give in, too strong to lose. We're back in the Element Well Studio. It's middays. Don't forget tickets to give away to the Township Blues Festival coming on later on in the program. Also today on In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar, you'll hear an interview with Hank Williams tribute artist David Church, who is appearing in concerts around the state celebrating the centennial of Hank Williams' birth. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish and homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant and go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. So, on the C Spire text line... With compassion and sympathy for Israel, this attack should wake all Americans up as to why we have our Second Amendment, says Neil in Greenwood. Yeah, I, I hear you, Neil, and I, I'm obviously all for the Second Amendment, but um, I don't know how effective that would be when bombs are raining down, raining down on you. I mean, you, I don't think you're going to fight a, a pretty sophisticated war effort from military-style troops, and if they even suspect you got guns in your house or what have you to protect yourself, they want to kill you. They're going to figure out a way to do it. I'm not saying you might not take out a few of them while you're at it, but I think it's a, a little aggressive to think that, oh, yeah, if I just got a 
uh, a pistol on me or a weapon on me, which typically would be that sidearm or, or concealed carry, that uh, I'm safe from this kind of attack, from terrorism. Uh, I think they'll figure out a way to overcome that. I don't think, I guess the point is, I don't feel like we're safe here in the U.S. from terrorism just because we got more guns and we have people in the country. Certainly didn't work on 9 11. And my fear is we've got bad guys streaming across our incredibly porous borders that uh, are likely plotting some sort of act of terrorism on American soil right now. And Joe Biden will, of course, have blood on his hands if it turns out that was the result of some bad guys that came across the border. The border to the north as well. You've seen a lot of reports on illegals crossing over and read some report on how there is some sort of checkpoint, but they can easily avoid that and go through some path or, I don't know, somewhere up north at the border of uh, the Canadian border. Um, so, yeah, it was Vivek Ramaswamy that put out a video going on a hiking trail. That's what it was, and they just they just circumvent whatever sort of security we have. Yeah, because I mean, the security at the northern border is much less than it is at the southern border, which is not enough considering. Yeah, but it seems like that that um, the numbers crossing over the the northern border have have uh, elevated have increased you've seen that same thing oh yeah yeah uh it's just it's not uh in our best interest i think to have borders that are just open like that and we have people serving in our government that refuse to accept that that's even a problem homeland security secretary mayorkas for example just is in a state of defiance about it. I honestly don't think Joe Biden has a clue. I really don't. Sadly. It's because they're ideologically idiotic. Yeah, it seems like it. Uh, so, I don't feel real good uh, about that situation, and, I, and I'm concerned. I'm worried of how that might affect us down the road here. Hello, Gerard. This reminds me of the movie. This is Sam from Mount Hermon. Uh, Last Crusade, when the old knight tells Indy, choose wisely. With all that money, I would do the same. He referring to, of course, the jackpot winner of the uh, the lottery. And someone asked, why is it always, um, why is it always somebody from California? Well, it's, first, it's not always somebody from California, but the odds are certainly with. California in the multi-state lottery, just it's just a numbers deal. I mean, you just got a whole lot more players in the state of California than you do in the state of Mississippi, and just the numbers yeah, bear that out. Johnny and West Point, and if you look at recently, it does seem like, wait a second, why is California getting all the big winners? But if you look at the the history of the big games that started in the early 90s, California's still playing catch-up to Florida and Pennsylvania. Yeah, I think, had, had we had a big one in South Carolina or North Carolina, it seems like a few years ago, somebody, because I believe that's a state that did require disclosure of the winner's identity, comes to mind. Uh, but sales in California of lottery tickets are 25 times, 25 times sales in Mississippi. 
And that sort of adds up if you think about it. The population is roughly 13 times the size. I mean, heck, of, Louisiana's got 10 big jackpot winners. Yeah, with a population of uh, much less than California. We're coming right back with hour two of middays from the Element Well Studio. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour two of middays from the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. Breaking news on the tube in the studio. Israeli military prepares for, quote, next stage of war. I believe that would indicate the ground troops are staging to uh, take action. I think that's what's happening there. Man, man, oh man. Can't people just act right? world would be a lot better if they would. No doubt about it. By the way, there are a lot of folks that refuse to believe that the Hamas barbarians beheaded babies. You've seen reports of that from Israeli forces that discovered it. The president last night said he's seen, you've seen this photographic evidence of that. Yeah, then the White House walked it back. What did they mean by that? What does that mean? What did, why did they go, get out over their skis and even say that? What, were they, what was he trying to say? Of course, he gets out over skis a lot, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, that's crazy. So we thought, as we told you earlier, we were going to have Congressman Michael Guest join us at 11.35, just about 30 minutes from now, but he got called to a conference meeting early this morning. Looks like Scalise is uh, scheduled to address the conference here momentarily. He got the majority vote in the conference, but not enough to win the speakership. So that's a problem. So it's still hanging in limbo. We do not have a Speaker of the House. I really wonder what those in the House who are in the way of getting this done, what do they expect exactly? I'm, I'm just curious. How, how do they think that if they throw a temper tantrum long enough, they'll get their way like last time? Yeah, but way for what exactly? I'm not sure what it is they seek. Just I don't as, think they even have a concrete idea. They just want the attention. It does seem that way, and that's sad. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm regretful at a minimum of that about my party. Um, I, I respect those individuals. I, I don't have any particular grievance in general with their policy positions, and I tend to focus more on that than I do personalities. 
I don't know what it is they hope to accomplish. So we're, we got rid of one speaker, who, by the way, now is vying to be the majority leader, I believe. He, he said that. So the way that would work. Um, I think that's what the position's called. Isn't that what Scalise was? Right? He's, he would be... Well, what's, what's the title for that, that level? You have the speaker, and then the majority and minority leaders, yeah. and assistant leaders, there and whips, and then majority caucus, caucuses and conferences. And all right. That. So that's what he says he's up for, uh, that being f- former Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And, all right, I get it. They had issues with McCarthy, and but I never really heard anything, like, concrete. Only on the spending matter where they wanted regular order to negotiate 12 spending bills. I'm with them. I think we should be conducting business that way as well. But rather than uh, attending to that and proceeding with that, we seem to be in speaker limbo here. There are 10 now, it's being reported, Republicans who say they will not back Scalise. So that's a no-go. Ten means we get a Democrat speaker if Scalise were um, the nominee. And we proceeded with the election, with the vote of a speaker. It's the problem you get with the purity politics of attention-seeking libertarians that have ran as Republicans. It seems like it. And I I told you, I've, I've gotten into some digital discussions and exchanges with some folks inside our state on that who are ecstatic. I mean, giddy over the ouster of McCarthy. And then I I just simply try to have a civil conversation about, well, what exactly are we going to accomplish here? What are the results that we should look for as a result of a change in who has the gavel? And Immediately, I just got attacked. Well, you're the problem, is what they said. Um, I'm the problem? And, of course, they know. You know, we're sitting here hosting a statewide show and have, have a voice and a mic that does extend. I'm grateful. I don't take that lightly. But, um, you know, I'm about getting stuff done for the country, and I've tried to focus on those challenges and even made some offered some opinion for what that's worth on how we should proceed, but I don't feel like I'm the problem. Uh, but it, it does seem like it was more about getting attention. In fact, one of these people even said, "Just give me the mic." <laughs> You've seen that before. Oh you? yeah. <laughs> you know my response to that: get your own show. <laughs> if management here wants to replace. Me with you? Okay, fine. I'll accept that. But until then, I don't make that call. Go start your own deal. Create your own statewide radio network. Good luck. No idea. None. Unbelievable. And again, I, I'm grateful. I, I don't take that lightly. I get it. And it's incumbent upon us to, to protect that privilege. And that's what we try to do. But our job is to opine. They told me that early on. You got to have an opinion. Okay, we got that. 
<laughs> Apparently, I struck a nerve with Thomas. Wait, so people who want fiscal responsibility and no continuing resolutions are now libertarians? The problem is the Republican Party has drifted left, and now actual conservatives are now slandered and called libertarian by rhinos. It's comical. No, what's comical is the continuation of libertarians thinking they can get something done by throwing a hissy fit. Eventually, yeah. in the wild world of politics, you have to compromise, especially when you don't hold all the cards. That seems it's called to be, acting like an adult, not a spoiled little brat. That, that, that point that we don't hold all the cards seems to get missed in the discussion. You just stand your ground. Okay, and then what? Don't you think they're standing their ground, too? So we just have this big impasse. And a lot of people say, great, we just shut the government down. Okay. And how, for how long? How long can we function without a military? Think about the powder keg the world is today. So, Thomas, I, I, I think you're being... Um, uh, shall Intentionally we say obtuse. Well, yeah, to some extent, but short-sighted in your assessment. People who want fiscal responsibility and no continuing resolutions are now libertarians. No, I, I tell you what the problem is. You don't have a plan. Show me a budget. I want to see your budget. How will you spend money? How will you raise money? Show me a budget. The eight that voted out McCarthy... Where's your damn plan? Don't just raise your hand and say, it's your job to get us a plan. No, you're serving, you're elected. Where is your plan? The, the answer is, you don't have one. You just want to raise hell. He says the opposition to McCarthy was due to the lack of fiscal responsibility. You mean the people who voted to spend $3.8 trillion in 2020? you got to be kidding me, Thomas. These same eight people signed off and supported and voted for every one of those. They ran up $6 trillion of debt in one damn year. That's conservative? That's fiscal responsibility? Have a damn clue. They didn't say a word in 2020 when Trump was president. Where were they then? That's the problem. You know the hallmark of fiscal responsibility and really the hallmark of effective governing? Consistency. These people are inconsistent. I'm good with spending $6 trillion dollars in 2020, but not now. Not now. And you're wrong. I have condemned the lack of... This whole idea of conservatism, lose that term, Thomas, because you can't define it. Define it for me in terms of a working budget. What does that look like? I mean, I want to know down to the penny, how will you spend that money? I tell you what, round it to the billions. How will you spend it? What's your plan? We're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. Middays with Gerard. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. 
Smith, Lou Graham, and Mick Jones, a foreigner. What a unique voice. I think my favorite member of that band is the bass player. I don't know his name. He's like 6'4", 6'5". He's a tall dude. I just He's fun to watch play the bass. I don't know why I like to watch bass players. What's his name? You see it? He's cool. Ed Gagliardi? I think that sounds right. At least he was from 76 to 79. Well, I, 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 well you know, 79. I have to think about that. Uh, I wonder if he performed... And after 79, it was Rick Willis until 92. And then Bruce Turgan from 92 to 2003. And Jeff Pilson has played with him since 2004. Well, i tell you where he's fun to watch is in the video, That Was Yesterday. So, let's see. I wonder who was the bass player when they recorded that. Uh, oh, okay. That looks like it's 85. Who would it have been then? 1985. That would have been Rick Wills. That's, that name sounds familiar for some reason. So, um, pretty cool. If you ever seen the video, it's really neat. They get the audience pretty riled up. Rick Wills, right? Uh, is that what you said? W-I-L-L-S? Yep. Yeah, now I'm curious. i got to at least look at him to make sure. He's credited with playing bass on songs such as Hot-Blooded, Cold as Ice, That's Urgent, him. Waiting for a Girl Like You, Feel Like Making Love, Jukebox Hero. There you go. I'm looking at him. That's definitely him. Definitely recognize him. But go watch him in That Was Yesterday. He's pretty cool to watch. All right. Gates isn't a libertarian. He's a Gatesian <laughs> on the ceasefire text line. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Gerard is about to open up a can of whoop ass. No, I'm not. I just, I, you could tell I get a little frustrated because where were these people in 20? I mean, I'm going to just be honest with you. I, the facts are the facts. The math is the math. That's the one thing that's, I know the left tries to come up with crazy math, but I'm still going by, you know, old school math, one plus one equal two sort of stuff. Uh, I think that still applies. But, under Donald Trump, the debt was increased by $7.8 trillion, the most in history. Now, it's true. That was largely due, and more than half of that, almost two-thirds, came in one year, the COVID year, because everybody was saying, we got to shut the place down, right? Even though most of that occurred at the state and local level, the federal government shut down what it could shut down under its authority, flying, right? Airports, for example, under the purview of the federal government. Lots of federal operations. Hell, we sent them all home. They're still home, which is ridiculous. But most of the economic shutdown occurred at the state and local level, and the federal government knew that, so they came up with this gigantic CARES Act. I don't even remember what the acronym stands for, but it's just a big slush fund is what it was. But you guys remember unemployment benefits, PPP loans, stimulus checks, all kinds of money to state governments. And, and no disrespect to our, our state leaders, but when I hear them go out and brag about how great we're doing financially, which I'm proud of. And I'm, I'm grateful to. Uh, much of that, it must be said, was driven by this helicopter money the federal government dropped on the states. Now, the difference here in Mississippi is we didn't go crazy and spend it all and actually spend more than we had. 
They did in some states. So hats off to the state of Mississippi in being responsible with that money. I think we got $2 billion of cash in the bank. Our rainy day fund is flush, for example. We produce surpluses and didn't go out and say, okay, let's go spend all that money. They did in some states, like California, which I think now is looking at a $30 billion surplus. Uh, pardon me, pardon me, deficit. They had a $20 billion surplus two years ago. Now they're looking at a $30 billion deficit in a short two-year turnaround. So my concern is that all these people that are now parading around and grandstanding about fiscal responsibility, where were they in 2020? Playing follow the leader. Exactly what. Nobody was going to cross Donald Trump. Nobody was going to do it. And Donald Trump did what his advisors told him to do. If Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin said, we got to do this CARES Act thing. He, it was his idea, his brainchild. It was the PPP thing. The whole deal was hatched by the Trump administration. Now, at the time, that looked like the right thing to do. And remember, before the, the CARES Act, which was, what, two point. One trillion, something like that, two point two trillion. Two point two. Two point two. Okay. The Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. Ah, yeah, there you go. Gotta have the fancy CARES Act. Sounds so so noble, so kind, does it not? But it just ran the debt up. That's all it did. We didn't have the money to pay for that. And a month or so before that, it was the initial bill was nine hundred billion. It was just under a trillion. So within a span of about sixty days, we literally added Think about it. $3.1 trillion to the debt in 60 days in this country. And every dang one of them signed off on it. Every one of them did. And, of course, the states, you remember, the states, the cities, the counties, I don't blame them. They're celebrating. Look at all this money we got. We interviewed many of them. What are you doing with your CARES Act money? We're doing this, this, this. Okay. I mean, it's... Nobody's going to return it, for sure. But, um, you know, it's it, it's just, I think, hypocritical to now stand up and say, you're not fiscally responsible. You just signed off on $6 trillion. What do you mean? Where's your plan? Where's your plan to achieve so-called fiscal responsibility? Now, in my view... Fiscal responsibility, let's just start at the highest level, means you at a minimum balance the budget. It's why I say they're playing politics so often, because it's not like they didn't have cover to vote against it. That's exactly right. Because all the Democrats voted for it. They absolutely So they had did. plenty of wiggle room to stand on their principles. But they did not. Totally agree. So Thomas says, I'd settle for just capping spending at last year's level for a few years, but that is too much of a lift for Republicans in Congress. That is wrong, Thomas. That is wrong, wrong, wrong. Kevin McCarthy offered that dude have a damn clue. He offered it, and they rejected it. It was a continuing resolution, but he offered a continuing resolution that would have cut non-defense discretionary spending back to the level it was. It was in 2019, and his own conference rejected it. And, it. and in fact, it cut so much, Chuck Schumer in the Senate said, that's dead on arrival. We're not doing that. It cut it significantly, about $250 billion. Now, that's significant 
on $850 billion, right? That's a lot. Because we're only talking about that pot of money. None of these folks that you're talking about are for cutting defense spending. I hadn't seen a single one of them stand up and say that. And in fact, who, who could forget Donald Trump saying, I rebuilt the military over and over and over and over again. And he did. He increased spending rather significantly over his three years on the military. It's like Thomas isn't really listening. Then pass it and let Chucky have to own it. So what is that going to do? They wouldn't pass it. They wouldn't. It's the people you're supporting in the House, Thomas, that stood in the way. They would not pass it. You're not paying attention here, man. They were aggrieved because we want regular order. But McCarthy offered a deal. And and he wanted it, honestly, to go exactly what you're saying. That's what he's, his plan was. Let's send it to the Democrat-controlled Senate and let them say no. Get that on the record. Just like you're saying, Thomas. But it's these intransigent, obstinate handful in the House that wouldn't allow that to go through. And honestly, when McCarthy put it on the table, I said, man, this is great. We're, we're actually cutting significantly here without touching defense. And, of course, you can't touch mandatory spending. And I thought, well, sure they'll be all over this. Even though I heard Schumer said, Speaker McCarthy, it's dead on arrival. You know how he is. He's got to come out and make a big grandstand about it. And that's, okay, fine, Chuck. We're sending it to your butt anyhow. But they wouldn't pass it. Now, here's the thing. It still produces a $2 trillion deficit. If they don't pass a single bill, if they don't pass a single spending bill during this 45-day period, when, when we're, what, about halfway through that now, when the continuing resolution runs out of money, if they don't pass a penny, we still produce a deficit. That's not fiscally responsible. So to your definition there, Thomas, the fiscally responsible thing to do would be to fund zero. Get rid of the military, get rid of the entire complex of government. We just have Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, other assistance programs, and debt interest. That's all we got. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Attention, adoring fans! It's time for... Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Well, I'm watching Secretary of State Anthony Blinken say we have strict oversight of Iranian funds. Are you buying that? I don't know that I've heard the term fungible. As much as I did the last three days. it's Money's fungible, uh, which basically means that it just kind of finds its way into the nooks and crannies, that it just doesn't always go for its intended purpose. And I, I do think that is an accurate way to describe sending $6 billion to Iran. Hey, please don't use that to blow us up now. Oh, I'm sure they'll abide by that. 
Oh. I can't help it. Every time I hear fungible, I think of non-fungible tokens. Maybe we should have sent them a whole <laughs> bunch of JPEGs of funky-looking fun, funky monkeys. <laughs> that is so right. So, um, back to this budget deal. Uh, just spend a minute on that. I, I just wanted to confirm through the reports uh, that what I was passing on was accurate, and, and it is. Uh, I mean, it's easy. You go out and find dozens of reports, because it was at the end of September, and McCarthy put this on the table, and uh, unfortunately, Republicans did not work with him to pass it. Here's how you know. By, by the way, it did cut about $250 billion. It got pretty close to the 19 level of discretionary spending. But here's how you know that it was um, at least edging towards the goal of fiscal responsibility, because this is what the White House said. If the office comes to the president's desk, he will veto it. Quote, in a blatant violation of the funding agreement the Speaker and the President reached just a few months ago, that was during the debt ceiling negotiation, remember, folks. The bill endangers the vital programs Americans rely on by making reckless cuts to programs, regardless of the consequences for critical services from education to food safety to law enforcement to housing to public health. Boy, they can just lay it out there. <laughs> it's just maximum fear-mongering. Unbelievable. Yeah, that $850 billion we spent on that is just not enough. <laughs> Cut it a couple hundred billion and all hell breaks loose. Unbelievable. So that's how you know what McCarthy was doing was headed in the right direction, because that's what you get out of the White House. Now, the Republicans that blocked it, essentially, they were just mad because it was done through a continuing resolution. I, I, I'm with them. I mean, I, I don't like that either. I don't know how to make that more clear. And I fought McCarthy for not taking care of business before then. And he knew this was coming up and getting ready to, to negotiate through regular order the 12 spending bills that fund the discretionary portion of government. I, I totally agree. Should have done that. Not so much that it makes sense to oust him. I think that's the extreme aspect. I, I think I'd have cut a deal. Hey, look, if you'll agree to a reduction of spending by X, we'll agree to a continuing resolution this time. But we ain't doing this again. Or we're going we're gonna to invoke our privilege of calling for a floor vote with just one member, and what happened is going to happen. I think I'd have done that. That's the way I would have handled it. But no, they had to go to the extreme. So again, my point is, what do you think is going to change about this? This is the reason you ousted him. You've already heard the White House say, we're vetoing it. You think they won't? Well, they don't have to worry about it, because it ain't ever getting through the Senate. Chuck Schumer's not going to. Okay, so great. We get everybody's vote on the record. So what? This is not going to change the outcome in any elections. Unfortunately, most people couldn't tell you how their reps and senators vote on spending. They just couldn't. And the other thing to keep in mind is, while we might be busy addressing discretionary spending, and we should, and working to cut it, the mandatory spending, the, the clock just keeps running up. 
every day. Nobody can touch it. I shouldn't say nobody can. Nobody will. So you you cut a dollar over here, and a buck fifty gets added to the part that you don't have any control over. It's it literally is plugging the dike. I just saw this morning that Social Security, just case in point, Social Security three point two percent cost of living increase in twenty four. I think it was eight percent last year. All this deficit and debts, it's all being driven by the programs that they won't touch. Won't touch it. You even mention any sort of material change, you're done. I've seen some proposals to allow Social Security to invest in equities as a way to generate more income, which would, which would in fact reduce the shortfalls the program's experiencing. But there's a lot of pushback on that because investing in equities is risky. Right now, they can only invest in special U.S. Treasury securities. You know you're going to get paid back because the government just prints money <laughs> if they need to. Not a matter of them running out. There's no such thing. So unless Gates and these others sh- show a plan, present a plan that includes reforms to mandatory spending, they're not fiscally conservative, Thomas. They're not serious. They're not serious. How long do you think Matt Gates would last as a congressman if he stood up today and said, I'm cutting Social Security and Medicare? What happens in the next election cycle? He's done. Everybody is. That's what we're dealing with. Unfortunately, that's what we're dealing with. Something's got to be done. It, something's got to be done if, you're, if your goal is, if your objective is, to balance the budget. How many times you heard that? We've got to balance the budget. Okay. Then you've got to dig into those programs. You ready? Have a serious conversation about it? No. Even Donald Trump said, oh, we can't talk about that. We're not touching that. Yet he's likely to be our nominee. He knows because... Be almost impossible to get elected if you started discussing it. Who have you heard talk about PERS with any degree of seriousness as they approach election here in a month? Now they'll start talking about it after the elections. Uh, but nobody wants to talk about that because it's a difficult problem. And, and you're tossing your opponent a softball. Big time. Yeah, everybody's waiting for the, the first break in the dam, right? And then it would go crazy. But, I mean, that's just the math. Unbelievable. They had the country's best interest in mind. This is on the ceasefire text line. They would do those hard things without fear of being voted out. It just shows what they're concerned with. No doubt about it. Um, and that that's... Welcome to politics. Yeah, I mean, that, that it is... It's been it, that way for as long as people have had the choice to vote for their leaders. It's disheartening that, to a great extent, political figures are, are measuring every word, every action on the next election cycle. And that, that is, that's sad. I agree. And then you say, well, that's why we need term limits. And then we have term limits, and we get the scorched earth that we got last year with some of those folks that knew they were terming out, or not terming out, but retiring. Uh, 
It's it's a tough one, but I would say you need people. I, I would agree in that we need people that don't care. Okay, if I if I make the tough decisions and I get behind these difficult tasks, and if that means I get voted out and lose my seat, so be it. I fell on the sword. You know, I took one for the team, so to speak. That's the kind of people we need. How many of them are there, though? Not many, honestly. Uh, some might point to Tommy Tuberville and his seemingly grandstanding over military budget. He doesn't seem to be real worried about winning his next election. I would agree with to you To make there. a stand on that, but that even that feels a little iffy. It it does, and it's. I think it's fair to say that a six-year term in the Senate is a little different than a yeah. two-year in the House. I mean, hell, as soon as you catch your breath from, from winning... The next day you're campaigning because <laughs> you just have to. You really do uh, with the two-year cycle. I, I I know it's exhausting from for those guys. As long as we are riled by the two-party system and they are in collusion, there's no way forward. I don't think they're in collusion whatsoever. Um, in fact, I would say if anything, uh, there's there's lack there's more lack of congruence today among the two major parties than at any time ever in our history. I mean, there's less precious little they agree with, especially when it comes to spending. Let's just say especially when it comes to budget and where the, the two parties come down on the budget and just operating the, the federal government from a financial perspective. We'll talk about that a little bit when we come back. We're in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. He's bound to die, up and trucking. Are we going to do what they say can't be done? We've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I'm he's bound up, watch your bandit run. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. TV last night where 48% of Democrats polled support the Palestinians. How is the Jewish vote goes big for Democrats, says Gary in the Burke. I, I got to tell you, Gary, I've scratched my head on that one for a long time, too. I've never been able to figure that out. I really don't. I haven't been able to figure out how anybody with a brain votes for Democrats, <laughs> let alone one specific group of people. Uh, man, oh, man. Let's see, Mr. G, you have the House of Representatives in Washington. Uh, about I think you meant to say gave. Gave, okay. 
three months. Oh, you gave them three months. Where's that grade now and why, Johnny and Tupelo? I did. I gave them three months. What was that for? You said exactly? you gave them a B grade. Oh, okay. I, I wasn't following the text. I, I see that now, the lowercase b. Yeah. Um, probably the same. I, I, I mean, the reality is about all they can do is kind of like what Thomas suggests. Is they can send bills over there all day long. That would be advancing a Republican agenda, if you will, it being controlled by the Republicans. But it's got no chance. I mean, I, I don't know how many more times we've got to say that. You got one half of one third of government, meaning you got no power. The only power you got is to stop bad stuff from happening. And on, on that basis, we are, um, I think, pleased because the it's put Joe Biden's agenda on ice, which is. The same thing would happen with Barack Obama. He he was in office for eight years and really only got anything of significance done in the first two because he lost the House in uh, 2010, never got it back, and so he didn't have the legislative body. And just, you're limited, honestly. And you know what he said, I have a pound on a phone. Then they go to the old executive order. And that's really what's running the country. It's the president, executive orders, and what Trump referred to as the swamp. It's the deep state bureaucracy, the uh, the Byzantine is really what it is, complex of of government. I mean, it's it, it's really that's who runs the country. It's not the Congress, and it shouldn't be that way. And We've got to continue to, to keep the Cong- uh, pardon me, the bureaucratic state in check, which has been done to some extent through lawsuits that have found their way to the Supreme Court, who's come back and said that, yeah, that don't work. Uh, but <clears throat> I, I, so I still give them a B about the same. I, I would like to see legislation to make the Trump tax cuts permanent. You know, I'm always focused on economic matters. I put that typically at the top of the list, and so do most Americans, by the way. I I believe that there should be a focus on that. The kitchen table issues, which I think are key and the highest priority to Americans right now across the country, focus on the kitchen table issues, get elected, get control, then work on the other stuff. I'm not I'm not discounting the need to work on it, not suggesting that it's not important, but you gotta win to do anything. And the path to victory, I believe, is focusing on the kitchen table issues. It's the James Carville, it's the economy stupid. You have to have an electable platform before you can implement any policy. Right. And um I, I think some of the cultural rot that's occurring in the country is 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 concerning at a minimum and harmful as well but we can't really address that without power without control all you have to do is look at the state level and just how the states have separated with such a big gap between them on those matters the blue states I saw where New Jersey is three states now are requiring lots of instruction on climate change in elementary school. Um, and then you have 
states where Republicans are largely in control, such as in Florida. I mean, you point to them because Ron DeSantis has probably been as much a vocal crusader on some of that stuff as anybody at the state level, with the uh, deeming certain content as inappropriate. And the same content he's deemed as inappropriate that's no longer allowed in Florida public schools is being embraced and required in the blue states. Some of the sexual content, gender ideology stuff, they require it as part of the curriculum to third graders, which is insanity. Of course, who said earlier? Jeff, I think, that um, uh, something about the, uh, the prohibition of certain content because those of us on the right seek to indoctrinate students, right? Just because, rich. just because we don't want them to see, oh, I don't know, sex acts in books in kindergarten classrooms. That's considered indoctrination, I guess. That's how upside down that is. We're coming right back. After the break, Super Talk News, Fox News, coming up next. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour three, the afternoon portion of Middays is now with you. We are live in the Element Wealth studio on this Friday Eve. We welcome to the program now Ashley Edwards, coastal Mississippi entrepreneur, former president and CEO of the Gulf Coast Business Council, and also a Super Talk Mississippi column contributor. Ashley, good to see you. What's going on? Hey, how are you doing today, Gerard? Good to be with you. Doing great. We've just been uh, discussing all the stuff going on, uh, really, in the country, in the state, and across the globe. It's just one of those days where there's news on all fronts. But let's uh, let's start out with this conflict. I, I think you could more accurately and appropriately describe it as a war uh, over there in Israel, um, where... The Palestinians, uh, Hamas specifically, have engaged in horrific acts of terror on innocent civilians in Gaza. And I'm watching the television in the studio now looking at Israeli ground troops. Looks like they're staged and ready to uh, go to work there. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, this is the last thing I, we thought we'd be dealing with this week. Um, but it's, you know, I, what an incredibly brutal, barbaric, savage attack on the Israeli people. Um, it's been interesting to me to see that there really is not much difference between the response of the mainstream Democrats and the mainstream Republicans in the United States. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Hamas sort of made the response to this very black and white with the, with the actions that they took. You know, when a sovereign people are attacked by an extremist, excuse me, an extremist military militant group um, with intent to inflict mass casualties, terror, 
what choice does the free world have but to push, but to push back very fiercely on that? I mean, that is a, an act of incredible aggression, an act of war. Um, logic would dictate, Gerard, that Hamas knew exactly what they were doing. I, I've heard people, you know, sort of ask the question, well, wait a second, didn't they know that the retribution would be terrible? Um, and you have to assume that they obviously did. And so I think what that tells me is the intention here is to create a conflict, uh, to have this continue to spiral, to bring in Lebanon, Iran, potentially Syria, uh, to try to, you know, continue to create this contrast uh, out in in their media and their propaganda that says, look how brutal the Israelis are and it's time for the Arab world to, to band together here. Um, so, I, you know, I, look, I don't think this is a small thing, Gerard. I think this is going to be with us, and I think we're only seeing the very beginning of what's going to happen in the Middle East. It's my fear as well, and uh, it, I think that is the sentiment, uh, represents the sentiments of, of lots of people that are studying this issue, that are very familiar with it. But I was talking earlier, I think uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is, uh, is resolved, uh, really, to totally take out and eradicate uh, Hamas. I, I, and I don't see how they can do anything less than that. It's not going to go away unless they really just completely eliminate it, at least their ability to, uh, to just strike like this and to inflict this sort of terror. Uh, they look like they're poised to really uh, lower the boom, as they say, on, uh, on the Palestinians and on Hamas. I think, I think they are. Uh, there's no question that military capability in Israel is extensive. Mm -hmm. uh, for all intents and purposes, they have American-made military equipment, American training. Uh, they, have a, uh, they have one of the strongest militaries in that part of the world. And so I would expect nothing less than the complete annihilation of Hamas by the state of Israel. Um, and I don't think that they're going to get a lot of pushback from uh, the responsible governments of the world on that. I mean, I, you know, I, I think you ask any government leader anywhere in the world just how much they'd be willing to tolerate our militants coming into their neighborhoods, uh, killing people in their homes, in their beds, burning children, slaughtering elderly women, Holocaust survivors. Uh, I, I don't think any country in the world would respond any differently than this if this had happened in their territory. I don't think you would see that if it had happened in the United States. And you know, I think what's very important, you know, we, we've lived in an era of terrorism um, and we often think of individual terrorists or small groups of terrorists that are connected to some bigger movement. Yeah. You know, for all intents and purposes, you know, Hamas is a government. They are governing a state. That's right. And so you're, you have a state essentially that is conducting this level of just barbaric terrorism. Um, I don't know how that could possibly stand anywhere in the world and how a responsible leader um, could not immediately take the position of we have to eliminate this threat. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's a great analysis of it as well. What has uh, been particularly uh, disturbing to me, uh, Ashley, is uh, some in this country who have seen fit to show their support uh, for Palestine, uh, for Hamas, and, and honestly seem to be condoning uh, these acts of terror, these uh, barbaric acts, honestly, including beheading of babies and and uh, locking up. You described it all, but the, the video I saw, I talked about on the show yesterday, was 
uh, the video I saw of, of children, toddlers, being locked up in cages, in stacked cages, looked like kennels for dogs, honestly. Just couldn't believe that, that that could even exist in this day and time uh, on this planet. How is it that even members of our Congress seem to hesitate to come out and condemn these actions? How could that exist? And then across our college campuses, a big day planned uh, today across the college campuses to protest Israel for causing this, for being the culprit here. Where are we going wrong here that, that people are so misguided and have such a, a lack of understanding of just history, honestly, among these students that are joining in these protests? You know, some of it's become fashionable. I mean, you know, look, there's no question, Gerard, in my mind, any honest person would say that life as a Palestinian in Gaza for years has probably been one of the most hellacious lives a human being can live on Earth. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Palestinian people have, have had it bad. I don't think anybody that's reasonable would disagree with that. But to then use that as a qualification or a justification for what a militant Islamic terrorist group did is beyond the pale. And I think this is, you know, look, I, I have never been a big fan of all the commentary about woke this, woke that, because yeah. I think oftentimes we start to put ourselves into corners. You know, if someone's out there teaching, you know, be empathetic, uh, that's not something that disturbs me. Yeah. It disturbs me greatly when you have thoughtful, intelligent Americans who are going to be leaders in our society. Take the, take the folks at Harvard. And I'm a, I, I, I attended a program at Harvard, so I've had a dose of that. <laughs> um, th this desire that they have to always have to put a qualification on things and say, oh, yes, yes, this was brutal, but the Palestinian people have been brutalized. Um, I believe that the Palestinian people have, have dealt with brutal things, some coming from the people who have been entrusted to lead them. Um, Israel, who I think has been uh, very, very harsh in terms of making sure that they can maintain security, have oftentimes sort of towed up against the line and crossed the line. I recognize that. But do, can you blame them at this point? I mean, you know, that's that's part of the interesting part of this here is, you know, people would say, look at all these things that the Israelis are doing to the Palestinians that are just brutal and horrible. Um, and now the Israelis say, well, now you see why we had to push so hard to maintain our security. Yeah. And now you see why we had to do so much to try to stop something like this from happening. Um, you know, the, the first job of government before anything else is to protect public health and safety. And when you have a situation where you have a pandemic, it creates a lot of confusion about how best do you do that. When you have a situation where you have armed terrorists breaking into neighborhoods, killing babies in their cribs, there's just not a whole lot of a whole lot of gray area there in terms, of, in terms of understanding what a government ought to do. And so, and look, and I and I will tell you this. I think it has been very limited on the left in what I have seen. Certainly, it gets a lot of amplification out there. Um, but I haven't seen one inch of difference between the administration's response to this and what I hear coming from, uh, you know, the leading Republican presidential candidates. Now, yeah. of course, there's a little bit of blame thrown in there of how did we get to this point. Uh, but I think the resolve across the board is clear. And I think that's a good thing for the United States, something that leaders who are diametrically opposed to each other in the political spectrum can agree on basic principles of, of you know, what constitutes barbary and savagery 
and what we're not going to allow to happen. I think you're right. I think overall there, there is uh, some degree of congruence um, on their uh, their feelings about this. Their, their statements have been somewhat similar, honestly, on the matter. we got a break right here. If you can hang with us, we'll come back on the other side. We'll continue this discussion. Also talk about this uh, Speaker of the House chaos that's happening up in Washington. we got Ashley Edwards on with us. We're in the Element Well studio. the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. back, everyone. Middays is back with you. We're in the Element Well studio today. Don't forget, Rhino's going to give away some tickets before we end the program on this uh, Thursday. We, we are uh, visiting with Ashley Edwards, Coastal Mississippi entrepreneur. So, you know, just once again, though, just wanted to, to get your thoughts on this. Th- these protests across college campuses, and they're in the streets as well. They're adults that and it's some in some cases there are clashes between pro-Israeli and pro-Palestine protesters in the streets. We've seen that in particular in New York, which is arguably the the most um, a prodigious melting pot culture in our country. Uh, but across our college campuses, this disturbs me more than anything. Actually, is that this this sort of rhetoric? that I think is spewed by much of those who work in academia. Uh, instructors, administrators, uh, just just college presidents even in some cases, that always seem to just jump all over sort of the cause of the day. And it's always counter to, to um, I guess, the broader culture. Um, and, and they do that, and they seemingly brainwash these these highly malleable college minds and then they come out and I don't even think they know what they're talking about. It's just like let me go join in a protest and be part of this cause. But does this does this indicate that they're condoning this kind of barbarism? Look, I don't think you could take it any other way than that. I, you know, I mean, I look, I, I saw earlier, just a few minutes before we came on air, uh, some quotes that were given by the head of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, PLO. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they weren't condoning what Hamas had done. Yeah. And so when you see rhetoric coming out of our college campuses, uh, that's more extreme than what you see coming out of leaders in the Arab world who generally would be very pro-Palestinian, I think it causes you to have to ask these kind of questions. I mean, you know, Gerard, look, I I think in some ways this is going to be a really interesting dividing line. I think most Americans are clear-minded and clear-headed about these things. Yeah, I agree. People who disagree with domestic policy see this very, very clearly. 
And so I think what it's going to do in many cases, just alienate a lot of these folks and just show them just how far outside the mainstream their views are. Now, will that matter? <laughs> I doubt it. Um, I found it interesting yesterday that some of the students in these organizations at Harvard that, that put out statements were sort of disassociating themselves with it. Um, and I think it's frankly healthy for some of these students to have to think about things like um, a career that I'm going into and how people in the professional world are going to view uh, my affiliation with these types of sentiments. And I think that's a very good thing. I think the accountability that comes along that is with a very good thing. You know, as for how do you cure, uh, you know, people that, um, that that can, you know, make these kind of statements or take these kind of positions, um, you know, look, I think it's one of the blessings of living in America, frankly. You know, we are able to separate ourselves wholly from things like this because, you know, we're still going to go drive out today and, and grab lunch and yeah. uh, listen to a podcast on the way home. Our lives are very simple in comparison uh, to what's going on over there. Um, I cannot imagine that a human being, when really faced with the facts, the reality, the truth of what has happened on the ground, could believe anything other than uh, Israel is completely justified in taking whatever steps they have to take to protect themselves and the security of their people. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you know, I don't, I don't want to overplay it. I, I agree with you that the vast majority of, of Americans um, understand they're, they're abhorred. At, um, at these atrocities. I don't think there's any question. It, it's just still disturbing that many of our young people that are on these college campuses that are paying hundred grand a year for an education, they're our future leaders, our future CEOs, our future political leaders. How so many of them could be so misguided? And I, and I fear it's just because that's the nature of of the university environment in this country is so overwhelmingly in one direction, philosophically, politically. I mean, it's, it's, there's no balance that seems to exist anymore. And, you know, there's all sorts of reports, I'm sure you've seen them as well, like 95% of college professors donate to the Democrat Party. And I, and I think that says a lot, that speaks volumes about likely that they're um, expressing their views and trying to impose those on their students. And that'd be okay if they were if it was like 50-50, and then the students hopefully could make their own decision. That's, that's supposedly what's to happen in a college environment, in a university environment. It's the laboratory of ideas and uh, uh, of the free exchange of expression and viewpoints. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening. But, you know, they got a wake-up call when Bill Ackman, uh, who manages, I think it's Pershing, one of the big hedge funds, he said, I want to know. He doubled down, by the way, in the last 24 hours. He said, I want to know. Everybody that signed this letter from, what, 22 groups at Harvard, because we're not hiring him. And he, and he encouraged all of his peers uh, CEOs as well. Don't hire these people. And then they started disassociating themselves with that because that's their future employers. And he made a very simple, but I thought pointed statement. He said, if you were managing a business, would you hire someone who blamed the despicable violent acts of a terrorist group on the victims? Would you hire someone who was a member of a school club who issued a statement blaming lynchings by the KKK on their victims? I don't think so. He goes on to say, I agree. So I think, you know, you're building kind of your profile t 
to a great extent while you're in college, when you're going to seek work upon graduation, this is what you offer. This is your profile. Besides your GPA, you know, what kind of person are you? That matters a lot. More than the GPA, to a great extent. Well, absolutely. You know, and I and I, you probably have seen it, Gerard. I think the statement by the University of Florida president, former Senator Ben Sass, uh, was was really one of the most clear-minded uh, statements that I saw. And I think that is a beacon for anybody that wants to wants to look at how a a reasonable person approaches a situation like this. And so, uh, you know, look, it is unfortunate. It, I think it's it, it's just it's sad, is what it is. It's sad to see people that just have this misguided sort of view of what justice really is. And, you know, look, I'm a big fan in justice. I think justice is a is a necessary component for a functioning society. Um, I would just ask some of these folks to maybe take a second look at the situation and reevaluate what does justice look like if you're an Israeli. I totally agree. Yes, Sass seems very clear. He meant no words and he, he blasted uh, the elitism in universities. I mean, he's right. That's where it's coming from. Uh, but it, it's good to see at least somebody uh, take that stand, honestly, and, and just be totally upfront and honest and, and clear and succinct and concise about it. And he did that in his statements. Let's talk about the craziness up in the House of Representatives. We don't seem to be able to get a speaker. I've been talking about that quite a bit this morning. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is the folks that are blocking this on the Republican side want and what they expect to achieve, but it doesn't look like we're close. What do you think? It doesn't look like we're close. It doesn't look like Steve Scalise has the votes right now. Um, arguably, this could not come at a worse time. You know, the, the real risk here is that congressional Republicans are, uh, you know, are really kind of piling up the manure in this card at this point, and they're yeah. going to start to look like they're just not serious people. Uh, and frankly, I think some of them aren't serious people. Um, you know, th- there is a huge difference between politics and governing. And it seems what some of the Republicans in Congress have forgotten is that they are up there to govern, uh, not to play politics, not to get out sound bites, not to fundraise. And of course, look, let's be practical. That's part of politics, yeah. fundraising and getting your name out there. Um, but the, the the damage that they are doing to the Republican Party, to the narrative of the fact that Republicans can be trusted with these issues, that they are clear-minded, that they're pragmatic, all of that goes out the wayside when your members are essentially playing games. Um, that's what we see happening. And, you know, there's nothing more serious, uh, frankly, than being able to have a functioning House of Representatives, which we cannot have until the Republicans can some to come to some agreement. Uh, and there's just a lot of personal kind of petty fights playing out. Um, you know, look, I've been around politics for 20 years of my life, worked at it and worked in high levels. I'm just a regular old voter now, and it makes me sick to my stomach to watch this stuff go on. And I, I have a feeling that probably the rest of the Americans feel the same way. People that aren't real big in the conference, the caucus, the way that politics happens, the sausage making, they look at this and just say, look, I don't want to hear about this nonsense anymore. Pick a speaker and let's get to work for the American people. No, you know, the, the thing that concerns me the most about this, and, and you alluded to it somewhat, is is that the Democrats are going to use this very effectively in their campaigns. Uh, 
to try to retake the House, of course, in the number of Senate races, and, of course, the White House, all coming up 24. Appreciate you joining us, Ashley. Always uh, appreciate and enjoy your insight and perspective. I'm sure we'll be talking soon. Take care. Thanks. Thank you, Gerard. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. the guitar man Who's gonna steal the show You know, baby, it's the guitar man He can make you love David Gates and Brett bumping us into this segment here. That's Guitar Man. I think that's my favorite. Brett, too? Yeah, so the Democrats will definitely leverage this chaos and it's just instability in the House of Representatives. Oh, buddy Robert Reich says, If the ongoing chaos in the House of Representatives has taught us anything, it's that the Republican Party can, can't even govern itself, much less the country. That's rich coming from him, honestly. Truly is. The reports on uh, the news right now that I'm seeing looks like Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, and then John Kirby recently delivered remarks, said 27, I think, Americans now confirmed dead, 14 unaccounted for. Is that what you saw? That's the latest numbers I saw, yeah. Yeah. Jeez. Um... Let's see here. I was looking at something uh, earlier that I wanted to get to. I know from experience that your employer checks your social media and your Facebook. No doubt about it. That's Jim from Pontotoc, and that's in uh, reference to Bill Ackman, hedge fund manager, who said almost immediately after learning about the groups on the Harvard campus who supported, who actually signed a letter, jointly a letter, condemning Israel and blaming Israel for the events and expressing their support for Palestine and are scheduled to protest today. It is true, like Ashley said, that many have now said, oh, no, I didn't really want to be part of that because Ackman came out. He's a big hedge fund manager, and, of course, a lot of the folks that work in those hedge funds, they're educated at Harvard. They're, they're B-School, they're School of Finance, maybe the best in the country. But I can speak from experience there. Almost everybody I ever met in that world, private equity world, that's where they came from. And they're highly compensated. I mean, these are seven-figure income jobs. Uh, but there's extremely unique, rare, special skills that they possess. But he said, we're not hiring them. I want to know the names of all these people that signed off on them, and I want that to be distributed. And the other thing I learned in my period of working up there, back and forth, is, man, they all talk a lot. They really do. It's amazing. Uh, And so it would not surprise that Ackman has personally spoken 
to the chief executives of many of these other firms and said, don't hire these people. Good for him. That being said, I've seen at least two examples of people being a bit overzealous to get out their torch and pitchforks and go after members of these student organizations because lists of membership have been circulating on social media and some people have taken it upon themselves to call current employers of some of these people on membership lists, except some of the people on these lists have already graduated and are no longer members of these student organizations. Yeah. Yeah, that's a problem. Uh, I agree. And, and so this is why you get so much of this stuff in corporate America um, as well. Uh, if you look at all the protests in America, says Paul in Meridian, the huge numbers to support this type of brutality it shows you who the enemy is in our own country. Yeah, I, I mean, I have concerns about that as well, Paul, and I, I think we have to keep it in perspective that, uh, again, like Ashley said, overwhelmingly Americans are united in their condemnation of these acts of brutality by Hamas and uh, and are in support, in solidarity with Israel. And and I think I've seen some polls, Rhino, where it, it, fairly large numbers of young people are in the Palestinian camp on this deal. And I, and I really do believe that stems from the indoctrination they receive at the college level. I think, I think um, if you did a poll of the uh, professor community, the academic community, see which side of this deal they're on, just real simply, I think you'd find they probably come down against Israel. Sad. Spoiled brats is what the heck they are. I'm telling you, it's the incumbency crap. If we have people protesting in support for Hamas, the United States better be putting them on a list and watching them 24-7, 365. Yeah. I, I hear you, and I, don't, I can't really speak to what our law it's enforcement... It's still a free country. You can have abhorrent views and express them without risk of the government coming down on you. Yeah, and I, I don't really support that they should do anything special in that regard unless they see reason to do so. I mean, as long as the protests are peaceful, and so far I've seen no reports to suggest otherwise, but I'm totally with you. What we're witnessing is what makes this country great, because nobody's being persecuted for their views one way or another that I'm aware of. Nobody's being arrested. Nobody's just suddenly, abruptly disappearing. That's what happens in other countries. And I fully support their right to protest, even though I disagree with their position. And I I really think it's disgraceful. I support their right to do it. But I think you talked about it yesterday. If, If the shoe were on the other foot, they don't. They want you totally expunged, right? You're just, it's hate speech, or we've got to cancel you. Of course, Jeff says that doesn't exist. Earlier, he said on the program, that's just right-wing fabrication or something to that effect. I think no. he gave the right-wing credit for creating cancel culture. Oh, I see. Which no, is just rich. That's, l- that's the lunacy of leftist mentality. Well, that's sad, because there are a lot of people, I know some, that have been terminated strictly because of some just minor expression of uh, viewpoints that they find objectionable. The left just doesn't like it when the the rabbit has the gun. (laughs) That's true. 
Oh, gosh. A lot of the pro-Palestine support comes from BLM and socialist activists standing in solidarity against the oppressor in Israel. Yeah, I've seen that as well. You guys have probably seen the BLM has been very vocal. And that's and, nothing new. No. The founder of Black Lives Matter back in 2015 was talking about how Palestine needs to do away with Israel. Right. Um, and, and they are... Uh, have always been in that camp, as you said. I mean, because their entire ideology is is an organization is rooted in Marxism. They made no bones about it. Michael Steele seems to have redeemed himself and rejected worshiping forty five, says Jeff in Forest County. Michael Steele, why do you bring him up? Former RMC. Why'd you bring him up? You gotta remember it's Jeff. He's off in his own little world and has his own conversations and just expects us to understand what the heck he's talking about. I mean, he basically abandoned the Republican Party a few years ago. I mean, that's fine. I've seen him on the race lady show and see it NBC. She he kinda sounds like a race lady acolyte these days, honestly. Yeah, Julian from Belzona says it's not illegal to be an idiot. BLM also supports violence against the governing authority. This also on the ceasefire text line, so it comes to no sh- shock that they're anti-Israel. We reported a few uh, few weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, remember, Ibram Kendi, one of the highest profile anti-race BLM activist people, can't seem to account for that $30 million he got. It's all crumbling down around him. <laughs> Unbelievable. Couldn't happen to a better person. Oh, my gosh. What a nutcase a guy is. Uh, Mike from Olive Branch says Senator Wicker was on the Gallo this morning. He was proud of the ports of Biloxi. We are proud of them also. Senator Wicker nor any other senator could ever come back and say, I didn't fight for more money for our state because our country can't afford it. No congressman can. Every congressman claims to want conservative spending, but their job is to do the best they can for their districts. I don't know the answer to controlling spending. So, yeah, that's consistent, Mike, with something we've said countless times on the program. And in the way I've described it is there's 435 in the House. There's 100 over there in the Senate. And we voters say, hey, you guys go up there in Washington and balance that budget and act in a fiscally responsible manner, but bring home all that money to my district now. And the problem is all 535 are hearing the same thing from their constituents. The next thing you know, you're $33 trillion in debt. So I hear you. I agree, Mike. It is, um, it, it is contradictory in many ways. You can't get reelected unless you bring home the bacon. And if you bring home the bacon, let's be honest, you're just adding to the debt because we ain't got the money. We don't even have enough money to pay for mandatory spending anymore. And in the meantime, old Robert Reich over here, he's crusading against that again, talking about the, um, the Trump tax cuts. Republicans passed a $2 trillion tax cut for the rich. Oh, gosh. How many times do I got to debunk that? Unfortunately, the people that consume all of his garbage totally believe all this stuff. We're coming right back with the final segment today on Middays with tickets to give away. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. 
Welcome back, everyone. It's Middays. We're in the Element Well studio, and Rhino's going to give away some tickets. Oh, yeah, we got the Township Blues Festival coming up Saturday, November 11th in Colony Park in Ridgeland with Cedric Burnside, Taz, and many others. Tickets are already available for sale right now at townshipblues.com. But you can get two tickets from Supertalk. All you got to do is be the 18th person to text into the C Spire text line. That number is 601-879-4395. Be the 18th person to text in Cedric, and you'll win a pair of tickets to see Cedric Burnside, Taz, and many others at the Township Blues Festival at Colony Park in Ridgeland on Saturday, November the 11th. There you go. So on the C Spire text line, uh, Neil and Greenwood, the Harbor protests are nothing new. Every conflict throughout our history, some groups in the U.S. have always spoken out with the different views. We had groups that supported Germany during World War II. At least most of them left for Germany. Yeah, I hear you, um, Neil. I, I realize that. You know, college campuses is, have always kind of been a little bit counter, I think, to uh, prevailing sentiments to a great extent. This just seems to be, in my view, a uh, I don't know, a, a little more obvious, a little clearer, and it's it's disappointing. And um, while I could certainly understand maybe some having the twisted idea that, that Germany uh, should be supported over the Allies in World War II, in, in this particular case, they're literally blaming Israel. They're, they're blaming the victim here. Uh, for the atrocities which were inflicted upon them. I think that's what bothers me more than anything. Um, so back to this uh, this comment by old Robert Reich. What really disturbs Republicans pass a $2 trillion tax cut, that's what he says, for the rich, and added over $7 trillion to the national debt under Trump. And we're supposed to believe the Republican cries over fiscal responsibility? That sounds like Thomas there. So, um, but there's so much wrong in there. It, it is absolutely true that under Trump, the debt was incremented by over $7 trillion, most of that which came in the COVID year of 2020. Deficits prior to that, around $700 billion is first year, 750 or so is second year, 900 billion is third year and then his fourth year is after that 2 billion or 2 trillion and change, pardon me. That's when we saw the uh, incredible spending for COVID. And of course revenues uh, during that year sort of moderated as well uh, just because of the economic scenario. All that's absolutely true. But what's not true is that the $2 trillion all went to the so-called rich. And the second thing is, there's a principle in accounting that's called matching. It's one of the uh, time-honored principles that, that accountants must practice and include in their work. Matching. It just simply means you've got to match revenues with expenses for the same period of time to produce accurate, meaningful financial statements. 
So what he's doing here is he's taking $2 trillion, which is over a 10-year period of time, and comparing that to $7 trillion, which is over a 4-year period of time. Also, in addition, the $2 trillion tax cut that he's referring to actually turned out to be a, an increase in revenue. It didn't, didn't produce the decline in revenues that were, were thought to be by the CBO when they predicted this thing. It's actually come in better than expected. That's what's so shocking that never makes it into the conversation. The forecast in 2017 when it was passed is that we generate $40 trillion of revenue, and then after it was passed, they pulled it down to 39.6. So basically they said over 10 years, this tax cut will result in a trillion-dollar decrease in revenue. Except now, they say, no, it's actually going to go up to 41.3. Where is that in Mr. Reich's analysis here? He just ignores that. By the way, this is from... Joe Biden's CBO, this is under his watch, the Congressional Budget Office. They're now predicting revenues are going to increase. Of course they are, because taxes were cut. So they just seem to have left that little detail out of this analysis. But yet, man, when you read through some of the stuff people say under Reich's post, they're just fawning all over him. 1,100 comments, 99% of them in support and just thanking him, expressing gratitude for him to just with clarity. We're out of here today. Back with you again uh, tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.